Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I came across a quote this week that just perfectly describes how important the life and work of Jesus really is. Here's what it says. All scripture finds its organic center and unity in Jesus. For this reason, the biblical narrative has its beginning in the creation of the universe through Christ, its middle in the earthly life and ministry of Christ, and its end in the reconciliation of all things in Christ. You see, Jesus isn't only the most influential person to ever live, although he certainly is that. We believe that he is also the axis upon which all of history turns, the foundation upon which everything else is built. And as Lynn Sweet says, all of God's story finds its organic center in Jesus. That is why last Sunday we kicked off a year in the life of Jesus, Throughout all of this next fall and spring, from his scandalous birth to his death and resurrection from the dead, we will be taking a journey through the life and work of Jesus. If you haven't had a chance yet, I would love for you to go to restoreaustin.org slash Jesus and sign up to go on this journey with us. We're going to send you a book, a custom journal, special Zoom links to conversations with me. We're going to go deeper into some of these concepts. It's going to be an incredible year. And this morning... We kick off this year with our first teaching series inside of A Year in the Life of Jesus. It's called Kingdom Come. Over the next five weeks, we will dive deeply into the events and people surrounding the birth and early years of Jesus's life. And this is not going to be five weeks of the Christmas story, although if you know me at all, you know how much I love Christmas, and you know I'd be totally fine with five weeks of the Christmas story. But that's not what this series is. You see, Kingdom Come is a look at what happened when the long-awaited, much-anticipated Savior came into the world. And there is way more going on here than a baby in a manger. At this point, I need to pause and I need to emphasize something that I will be talking about all throughout our year in the life of Jesus. And that is this. Jesus existed in a real place, at a real time, and among real people people. Yes, he was God in the flesh, but he was also human. Christians have affirmed for thousands of years that Jesus was both fully God and fully human, and his full humanity, it existed in a specific time and place and culture. The truth is that Jesus was poor. Jesus was dark-skinned. Jesus was a Jewish man. He was born to a scandalized family from a backwoods town, His family spent his first few years as immigrants in a foreign country because they were fleeing persecution. Then, Jesus spent the rest of his life welcoming people who'd been shut out, eating with people who'd been cast aside, touching people who'd been called unclean, forgiving people who'd been deemed unforgivable, and teaching people about the radical, all-inclusive kingdom of God. And Jesus did all this while being persecuted by and then eventually killed by the two most powerful groups of the day, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman Empire. 
none of this was by accident. None of this was happenstance. Jesus didn't just get randomly born to a random family in a random time and place. God could have come to earth as a human in any time and any place, but he chose this one. He chose this one. He chose this family, this culture, and this community of people. So I'm thinking we should probably take the setting and culture into which God chose to be born a little more seriously than we often do. This stuff really matters, y'all. Yes, Jesus died and he rose from the grave, but he also lived. He lived a whole life. And we have huge chunks of it recorded by some of the people closest to him. I want the time and place that Jesus was born to come alive for us. I want it to feel like we know the people that he spent time with and like we've made a visit to the culture he grew up in. Thankfully, Luke helps us do just that in his account of Jesus's life. And that's where we're gonna spend our time today. So if you've got a Bible or your phone, uh, iPad, anything like that, love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. We're gonna start in verse one. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke is, is writing, he addresses this to an unknown person named Theophilus. Now it's really cool. Theophilus actually directly translates to friend of God. So many people believe that Luke wasn't writing to a specific person, but instead he's writing to anyone interested in knowing more about Jesus. But regardless of if Theophilus was an individual or a group, Luke is writing for a very specific purpose. And he says it there so that anyone and everyone reading it may know the certainty of the things we have been taught about Jesus. So that we can know this Savior, this Messiah is not too good to be true. That he is real, that he is God, and that his love for humanity knows no bounds. Luke begins his account of the life of Jesus in a way that is a little different from the other three accounts. In fact, they, they all begin a little differently, no doubt reflecting the kind of personality and purpose of each author. Matthew starts with Jesus' genealogy, showing where Jesus came from, his lineage. Mark opens up with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, right? Long hair, eating bugs and honey and the whole thing. And then John begins with this poetic expression of the incarnation of God in Christ. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But Luke, he goes back further than the rest of them. He starts with this often overlooked line. He says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, if you just start reading this in verse five, this seems like a new story that Luke is telling. But he was purposefully drawing his first century readers back to the prophecies and predictions about the Messiah from the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Zephaniah all begin exactly the same way that Luke begins in verse 5. 
their first sentence names the ruler and the location that they're talking about. Now, if you were one of Luke's first readers, reading this in the first century, shortly after Luke wrote this, you immediately realize this is not the beginning of a new story you've never heard before. This is a continuation of a story that has been unfolding since the world began. Luke is letting his readers know that all the prophecies and predictions of old are coming true in Jesus. He really is the long-anticipated Messiah. Now, this type of opening is the way that biblical authors like Luke mark the time. This is to ensure that everyone reading it, both then and now, would know exactly when and where these events occurred because the setting matters. The place, the time, they matter. But we just usually skip over it though, right? It's like those first eight words aren't even there in the time of Herod, king of Judea. But those words, those eight words, they tell us so much about what is happening to the world that we are about to step into, that Jesus is about to be born into. King Herod is Herod the Great, a historical figure that Luke is referring to here. And he was, in fact, not that great. History remembers him as one of the most ruthless and cruel leaders of his time. Herod kind of personified the Machiavellian understanding that the ends justify the means. He did whatever he could to gain power. He did whatever he had to to stay in power. Anytime there was even a perceived threat to him, he immediately removed it by any means necessary, even executing several members of his own family, including his wife, when he became paranoid about where their loyalties lied. Like the biblical authors before him, these first eight words are Luke marking the time so that we will understand this socio-political climate of the day. And he also goes into pretty specific detail about the cultural standing of the family Jesus is born into. Luke is about to introduce us to four folks, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary. These four humans, along with God and the angel Gabriel, kind of round out the cast of main characters in this opening section of Jesus' life. Luke begins by telling us a little bit more about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Remember that, that's important observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So Luke tells us Zechariah and Elizabeth both come from priestly families and, and Zechariah is actually a pretty important priest in his own right. We find out in the next few verses that he's been entrusted with going into the temple and burning incense. But we're also told something else about this couple. They're infertile. They haven't been able to have children their entire lives, and now they're too old for it to ever happen. If you've ever dealt with infertility, you know how incredibly hard it is. Well, imagine that difficulty magnified tremendously because in this culture, they believed infertility was a direct sign of God's displeasure with you that you'd done something wrong, that you deserved it, that it was a punishment handed down to you from the divine. But that's seemingly not the case here, right? With Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke makes it clear that they are, quote, righteous in the sight of God. 
already, I want you to notice, Luke is making a vitally important point that he will make over and over and over again throughout the 24 chapters of his account. He's saying the kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. You see, the kingdom of their world told Zechariah and Elizabeth, you can't get pregnant. There must be something wrong with you. God must be against you. You must have upset him in some way. This is a punishment. You deserve this. But the kingdom of God said, I'm so sorry you can't get pregnant. But I am with you in this. And believe me, I am working for your good. It's just the opening paragraphs, but Luke is already being very countercultural. He's also continuing to draw us back to God's big story. You see, as his first century audience read about Zechariah and Elizabeth's infertility, they would have remembered Abraham and Sarah, heroes of the faith of old who also couldn't have kids. But God intervened and gave them a baby boy named Isaac, and that family was the beginning of the Israelite people. So Luke is setting his readers up to expect another miracle from God, and God comes through. Zechariah goes to the temple to pray, and while he's there, an angel appears to him and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, listen, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, remember that. It's going to be important in a second. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel here tells Zechariah and Elizabeth that the child God is giving them is going to prepare a way for the Lord. And again, Luke draws us back to earlier in God's story when Malachi the prophet concludes the Old Testament by saying this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Remember, the angel just told Zechariah that his son John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Another confirmation that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. So Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John, and they rejoice, and they, they wait for his arrival. And in the meantime, Luke introduces us to Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, and her fiancé named Joseph. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Again, the early readers of Luke's account would have picked up on the fact that Mary was a virgin, that Joseph was from the line of David. Both were Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that are being fulfilled here by Jesus. But Luke is also doing something else in this passage, something so important. He's continuing to drive home his point about the countercultural kingdom of God. Joel Green is a New Testament scholar and professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. He wrote an incredible commentary about the book of Luke. And about this passage, he says, 
The social setting to which we are introduced in Luke 1, 5 through 2.52 is one in which issues of social status and social stratification are paramount. Luke's social world was defined around power and privilege, and it's measured by a complex of phenomena, religious purity, family heritage, land ownership, vocation, ethnicity, gender, education, and age. Power and privilege were measured by those things in the society where Mary and Joseph lived. He says Mary's introduction is striking. It is as if she were an orphan. No family background is provided. She is betrothed to Joseph, but as such has not yet entered his house or inherited his status, and yet she is favored by God. In the kingdom of that world, Mary was a nobody. She is the lowest of the low in virtually every category that were measures of power and privilege in that culture. She isn't even second or third class. She is bottom class. Mary has no family heritage of note. She owns no land. She has no vocation. She's from Nazareth, a town, a tiny town of about 1,600 people at the time. In John's account of Jesus' life, someone finds out that Jesus and his family are from Nazareth. This is what they say. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That was Mary's hometown. But Mary wasn't just from a poor town. She was a poor person, a part of the peasant class who were oppressed and taxed relentlessly by the ruling elite. Peasants had to use the little money that they gained from things like agriculture or carpentry or other menial trades to pay three different taxes levied upon them. One to Rome, one to King Herod specifically for his building projects, and another one to the Jewish temple. Mary was also a woman. Women in the kingdom of that world had no rights. They were the property of their fathers until they were basically sold to another man in marriage at a very young age. At that time, they became the property of their husband. And when I say young age, I'm talking about a young age. Most scholars believe that Mary was 12 or 13 at this point in the story when the angel visits her. She also probably couldn't read or write. The majority of women in that day, especially poor ones, weren't deemed valuable enough for education. Let me just put it this way. Mary was an illiterate peasant girl born to a no-name family in a town that nothing good ever came from. In the kingdom of that world, Mary was a nobody. But in the kingdom of God, she was a somebody. In the kingdom of that world, she was lowly and marginalized. But in the kingdom of God, Mary was highly favored and chosen by God for arguably the most important task any human being has ever been chosen for. Why? Because the kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. Jesus hasn't even come on the scene yet, and we are already seeing the world begin to change. We're already seeing the gospel, the kingdom of God, challenge the kingdom of this world. Elizabeth shows us how God turns shame into honor. Mary shows us how he chooses and exalts those who have been cast aside. Y'all, this is our first glorious glimpse 
at the kingdom of God breaking into the world, and it is a breathtaking thing to behold. So continuing in the story, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and they share the great joy of their pregnancies with each other. And it's during this visit that Mary sings her famous song, the Magnificat. Mary's song is such a beautiful and vitally important work that we are actually going to spend the rest of our time together focusing in on it. Songs like this are not uncommon in Scripture. The Old Testament actually records ones like it from Miriam, Moses, Deborah, Hannah, and many others. Luke is again reminding his readers this is not a new story, but a continuation of an old one about how God loves and pursues humanity. But you have to understand The birth of Jesus is not simply just another scene in the drama that's unfolding. It is the beginning of the climax of the story. The most important part, Mary is singing about the Messiah, God in the flesh coming to earth. She is singing about her great joy to be a part of it and about how the world will never be the same because of it. You see, more than anything, Mary's song tells us about the kingdom of God of God. It's not just a prediction about what Jesus will do when he is here on earth. It's a declaration of what God will do forevermore as he slowly and subversively overturns the kingdom of this world and replaces them with his kingdom. I want to start out just by reading the whole song over us. Here's what Mary says. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. You may have noticed that Mary's song has this movement from personal at the beginning to communal at the end. She spends the first half talking about God's work in her life, how incredible it is, but then the second half talking about God's work in the world, what he is doing and what he will continue to do. This is such a beautiful picture of how the kingdom of God is supposed to rule in our lives. It is both personal and communal. Anyone who tells you the kingdom of God is only about personal salvation or only about social justice is flat wrong. It is always, always both. And it's not 50% of one and 50% of the other. It is 100% both. It's also important to note that God is the main actor in all of Mary's song. He is the one providing salvation and blessing. He is the one showing mercy and giving help. He is the one bringing down the powerful and the proud. 
God has and will continue to work through those of us who make ourselves available to him, people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, but he is still the power behind everything. It is his spirit at work in us and through us that accomplishes these things. We also see two sides of God in Mary's song, right? This warrior king who scatters the proud, who dethrones rulers, who challenges the rich, and then this merciful savior who feeds the hungry, lifts up the lowly, and helps those in need. These are not two gods. These are two sides of the same coin. You see, out of his love for humanity, our God pursues both justice and mercy simultaneously. And it's amazing that even his acts of justice are actually merciful and redemptive. I love how Leonardo Boff says it in his great work called The Maternal Face of God. He says, God flings the proud of heart to the earth in hope that they will be delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. Even his justice is merciful. Mary's song is a beautiful and powerful picture of the kingdom of God upending the kingdoms of this world. Tim Mackey, who founded the Bible Project, puts it like this. Mary sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God is going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. Jesus is going to turn the whole world order upside down. That's the kingdom of God. Mary's song is not only a prediction about Jesus's mission during his short time on earth, it's a declaration of God's mission for all time. He is turning the systems and structures of earthly kingdoms upside down. Mary finishes her song by hearkening back to the promises made by God to her people long ago. This reminds us one last time that God's loving pursuit of people, especially those who've been cast aside by society, is nothing new. This is who God has always been. This is who God will always be. Like I said earlier, this opening story from Luke's account is our first glimpse at the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And it's the clearest picture we have yet of the fact that the kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. You may be asking, Zach, why do you keep emphasizing that? Why do you keep saying that over and over again? Why does it matter so much? Because following Jesus means our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not to the kingdoms of this world. I want to say that again. Following Jesus means our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not to the kingdoms of this world, not to a country, not to a political party, not to a social agenda. Jesus told his followers to seek first the kingdom of God. This means a Christian should never make a decision by asking themselves questions like, what would an American do in this circumstance? What would a Republican or a Democrat do? What would a progressive or a conservative do? 
As cliche as it might sound, Christians should be asking one question and one question only. What would Jesus do? Being a Christian means our primary allegiance must be to God's kingdom and the ways of Jesus above all else. When they asked Jesus, what is the most important thing in the world? He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. During his last night with his closest followers before he was betrayed and eventually killed, Jesus turned to them and said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. This is the question we should be asking ourselves anytime we're faced with a decision. How do I love like Jesus loved? How do I love like Jesus loved? And I fear that so many of those who call themselves Christians, especially some of the most prominent among us, have forgotten this most basic truth. They have believed the lie that their allegiance belongs to a, a country or a party or a politician or a political agenda or an ideology instead of to the creator, God, and his kingdom. They have forsaken the kingdom of God for positions of power in the kingdoms of this world. And it is a tragedy. Two instances occurred just this last week that really, really got to me. A video from a few years ago called Slavery and True Liberty resurfaced in which a California pastor named John MacArthur says, quote, for many people, poor people, people who weren't educated, people who had no other opportunity, working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. If you had the right master, everything was taken care of. We have to go back and take an honest look at slavery and understand that God has, in a sense, legitimized it when it's handled correctly. He says, we shouldn't have such an aversion to the institution of slavery just because there have been some abuses of it, because it is, in many cases, ordained by God. The video understandably received some negative feedback. But instead of owning up, instead of standing up and apologizing, MacArthur decided to double down on this take, this horrific, unbiblical take, and preached a 56-minute sermon on the subject of slavery at his church last Sunday. That's number one. Number two, the other thing that happened this week. On Thursday night, a Christian author and speaker named Eric Metaxas was walking back from a political event with his wife and a group of friends. A solitary protester on a bike was riding peacefully down the street when Metaxas runs up out of nowhere and sucker punches him in the side of the head. It's on video. In the video, you can hear Eric's wife saying, Eric, stop, Eric, get over here. MacArthur and Metaxas are not random guys. They are influential leaders in the church. I have both of their books on my bookshelf in my office. People say that you're not supposed to name names. They say you're supposed to keep it vague. But if we don't hold each other accountable, if we don't speak truth, spirit-filled truth to power to the people in our own camp, how can we expect anything to change? These guys are not alone in their sin. This is just the latest incident. 
Like Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, there are many who have traded the truth about God for a lie and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. How can I be so sure that their actions are sinful, you might be asking? Because if you are asking, how do I love like Jesus in this situation? The answer is never punch someone you disagree with in the face. If you are asking, how do I love like Jesus? The answer is never twist the Bible to defend slavery. I can't believe this even needs to be said. But loving like Jesus means blessing those we disagree with, not punching them in the face. It means lamenting alongside the black community who had yet another member shot seven times in the back this week, not telling them to get over police brutality and that slavery wasn't so bad either. Loving like Jesus means mourning with those who mourn and seeking justice for the oppressed. It means loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. It means pledging allegiance to the kingdom of God and working to see God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. That's how Jesus taught us to live. I am heartbroken. I am angry, if you can't tell, by the damage caused by Christians who have forsaken the kingdom of God for positions of power in the kingdoms of this world. I am devastated by the destruction they so callously leave in their wakes. But I also have hope that God is in the process of making good on his promise to scatter the proud, to bring down the power hungry. And when that day inevitably comes, for MacArthur and Metaxas and every other person who has forgotten their first allegiance, I pray that what Leonardo Boff said would be true, that they would be delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. Because following Jesus means our primary allegiance is to God's kingdom, not to the kingdoms of this world. Being a Christian means approaching every decision, every circumstance by asking, how do I love like Jesus does? This is not just where our allegiance belongs. It's also where our hope comes from. Even with violence and chaos from the kingdoms of this world swirling around us, even as we mourn the brokenness in our communities, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. Because God's kingdom, God's kingdom has broken into this world through Jesus Christ. A few months after Mary sings her incredible song, John is born to Elizabeth. And his parents celebrate along with folks from their whole community. It's this beautiful scene. At the end of the celebration, John's dad, Zechariah, stands up and delivers a prophetic poem of his own. He ends it with these words. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Jesus is the morning light that is broken into the darkness. He is our guide to the path of peace. He is our hope even in the shadow of death. And following him, 
I promise following him is so much better than following anyone or anything else. The kingdoms of this world pale in comparison to the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, what a story. What a beautiful way that you began breaking into this world with your kingdom, with your son, Jesus. I want to thank you for Zechariah and Elizabeth, for Mary and Joseph, for their incredible faithfulness. God, I can't imagine 12 or 13-year-old Mary betrothed to a man that was probably way older than her, sitting alone in her room, and an angel shows up and says, you're pregnant right now with the Savior of the world, with the Messiah. God, I don't know how I would have reacted, but I doubt it would have been, I am your servant and I will do whatever you say. How beautiful the example that she and these other folks set for us. And how beautiful the kingdom of God is as it breaks into the kingdoms of this world, as it disrupts them, as it dethrones the powerful, as it scatters the proud, as it shows mercy to the lowly and lifts up the humble. God, we need that in our world today. We need that. Use us, Lord God to be bringers of your kingdom wherever it is that we go, wherever it is you've placed us. As Jesus taught us to pray, God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.